Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 21 to 24. And I do uh, encourage you to have your Bibles because this morning we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We'll be flipping through some Bible passages, a few found in the Old Testament, kind of a a Bible study of sorts. When I was doing my study for this passage, I was uh, greatly aided by a gentleman named John Stephen. He's a PCA pastor in the Presbytery that I was in in Florida, and I'm going to be using much of of his material um, in our Bible study portion of our sermon today. So I wanted to just point that out to give credit where credit is due. But we'll be looking at Genesis 17. We'll be looking at Exodus 13. We'll be looking at Leviticus 12. And of course, we'll be looking at our Luke passage. But hear now the word of our Lord, Luke chapter 2. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Father, we pray as we continue in this series on Christmas through Mary's eyes, that you would uh, direct our, our thoughts, our, our sight to your word, that we would grasp it, we would understand it. And we would grow thereby in Christ's name. Amen. Well, that big day, Christmas morning, has passed. It's, it's been actually nine months uh, that we've been looking at over this series. Angels have appeared, and a virgin became pregnant. As songs were sung, great uh, songs of the nativity. A wedding was celebrated, and then a child was born. And when we last encountered Mary and Joseph and the baby, they were in a barn in Bethlehem because there was no room for them in the inn. And the baby was lying in this makeshift crib. As we know, shepherds had come and gone, and Mary was taking it all in. We're told she was treasuring up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Well, throughout our series on this, we've learned many lessons from this godly servant of the Lord, uh, the importance of pondering, as I just said, being one of them. But, but clearly, the, the greatest lesson that Mary teaches us is her humble submission to God and His Word. Uh, from the very opening scene and every step along the way, Mary has displayed in her life the words she spoke in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's the model Christian. I've pointed that out. Nothing describes a faithful disciple of Christ better than submission to the Lord and obedience to the word of God. And so as we come to our verses this morning, it's no surprise that this blessed theme of submission and uh, Mary's obedience continues. As we turn to verse 21 and 24, it's tempting to just see this as merely Jewish ritual. Mary's just doing what any faithful Jewish mother would do. 
However, we're going to have an understanding of the person and the work of our Savior Jesus. We need to understand that there's much more going on here than we may first perceive. And in verse 22 to 24, we find this repeated phrase. Verse 22, according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. The law of Moses, the law of the Lord, repeated. It's also repeated in verse 27 and in verse 29, five times in total. And so what Luke is doing as he writes his gospel is drawing our attention to the law of God and the fact that Mary and Joseph were godly parents who, who wanted to do what God required of them in that law. Again, Mary is submitting to the Word of God, demonstrated here in her obedience to the ceremonial law. And that's what we find in these passages, in these verses. Now, for us to grasp what's kind of going on here, we need to turn to the Old Testament. And so, have your Bibles ready. Again, this will be a, a little bit of a Bible study. You'll want to find Leviticus chapter 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I'm sure you've walked through that several times in your life for devotions early in the morning and studied Leviticus. But I do want to look at several passages. We'll start there. And we're going to walk back and forth between the passages. And we're going to show how Mary and Joseph follow the law of God. That's the goal here. We read in verse 21 in Luke 2 that at the end of eight days when he had Jesus was circumcised. Why, why? Why did Mary and Joseph wait eight days to circumcise Jesus? What's going on the first seven days? Well, that's what we're told in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And as the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And that's what we find here with Mary. She's unclean for seven days. And the reason why a mother was unclean is because she was presumed to be carrying a, a child who was a sinner. And so Mary, in keeping with the law waits seven days, and then on the eighth day, she has Jesus circumcised. Now, to understand the sign of circumcision, we need to turn to Genesis 17. So look there. It's the first book of the Bible. Flip back, picking up in verse 9. This is what God, he's speaking. He says this to, uh, to Abraham. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout their generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. 
so shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, this isn't usually the reading we do for our devotions and study here, but this is a bloody rite. Obviously, you know that. And it marks off the children of Abraham. Who are the children of Abraham? Those who receive circumcision, either your own children or if you bought your slave children and things like that, if you brought them into your house. By receiving circumcision, Jesus was receiving the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It marked him, Jesus, in his flesh as a member of the covenant community. Jesus was a true son of Abraham. Now, it was the custom to wait until the time of circumcision to name the child. Uh, see, just as Abram and Sarai received different names when, when at the time of circumcision was instituted, this is when they were called Abraham and Sarah, so the Jews then waited until the day of circumcision to name their male children. And so we read in Luke 2, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so, in obedience to the word given by the angels, Mary and Joseph named their newborn child Jesus. The Lord saves. Well, as I mentioned, Mary's unclean, and so she needed to go through the ordinance of purification, and that brings us back to Leviticus 12. It's spelled out for us there, verse 4. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying, so shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. And so in the case of a birth of a son, the mother was banned from the temple. She was banned from performing any religious duties during this time. And it lasted a total of 41 days. Eight days prior to the circumcision, and then 33 days following the circumcision. And so for about five weeks, Mary and Joseph needed to wait before they could perform the, the, the next requirement of the law. And then in Leviticus 12, we're told after that waiting what that next requirement was. Mary must make an offering, a, a, a sin offering. If you look at verse 6, picking up in verse 6 of Leviticus 12, and when the days of our purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he, the priest, shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. And so after these 41 days elapsed, Mary was required to go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And now, if you turn back to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, that's what she does. 
And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, what we just read in, in, in Leviticus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord Jesus. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, this, the poverty of Mary and Joseph is obvious here. When you look into this offering, two turtle doves and two young pigeons was the poor man's offering. We just read it. If she cannot afford a land, this is what Leviticus said. She cannot afford a land. This is what Leviticus said, which is the third requirement found here in her law. First, circumcision, then purification, and now presenting the child to the Lord. And this isn't just some ancient baby dedication. It's commanded in Exodus 13, uh, verse 1 and 2 of Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And that's the verse quoted in Luke chapter 2, that verse in Exodus 13. Now, with these words, God lays what he is doing, is laying his claim on every firstborn son of Israel. That's what Exodus 13, verses 11 and 15 states. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that the first that first opens the womb. And, and that would have included animals and humans. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And so this presentation, this ceremony, was a reminder to the people and to this, uh, this child, in this case, talking in Exodus, of the great redemption God secured for his people at, in, in the Exodus, at the time of the Exodus. You know the story of the Exodus. God brings judgment upon Egypt. You know that. You have all the plagues. Then you have the plague of the death of the firstborn son. God killed all the firstborn of every male and every animal in the land. Only those who placed blood on the doorpost were spared, were redeemed. You remember the story. The angel passes over their house, this, the avenging angel, and because of this, God says every firstborn son of Israel belongs to him. He protected them. He watched over them. They, they have forfeited their lives, as it were, says one writer. Therefore, they must be bought back. God it takes them. They must be ransomed. They must be redeemed, these firstborn sons. And so by presenting the firstborn son to the Lord, as Mary did Jesus, Jewish parents were setting them apart for his service. That's what's happening. That's the backdrop of what we find in our passage this morning. I'm going to summarize it, and this is where John Stevenson was very helpful. Remember, we begin in Bethlehem. Mary gives birth. She waits seven days, has her son circumcised, and names him Jesus, the Lord saves. 
For the next month, they care for their child as they wait to make the trip to the temple for the purification and presentation ceremonies. And then finally, the day arrives. Mary and Joseph would have gotten up early in the morning and set off for Jerusalem, which was about five miles away. Remember, Jerusalem's the religious and the whole center of their world. And it's the city of God. It's the marketplace. And it would be very crowded. There's hustling and there's bustling all around them. But what they would do is they would have bypassed the, serve, the merchants and they would have made their way to the temple. And the temple stands on the eastern edge of the city. There, there's hardly a place in all of Jerusalem, I haven't been there, but people verify this, where, where, you know, where they tell you how everything would have been set up, even though the temple's not there, wherever you cannot look and see the temple. Anywhere in Jerusalem at this time, they would have seen the temple. So Mary and Joseph, they climb the broad stairway and enter through the gate into the vast court of what's called the court of the Gentiles. They're carrying their infant child. They come to a stone wall on which is written a solemn warning in Greek and Latin, forbidding all Gentiles from going any further. The Gentiles couldn't go any further. They would have had to remain. Well, they pass through the narrow gate, and they climb 14 steps to the gate, beautiful, And they move through the gate. They find themselves in the court of the women. Mary would place money in the offering chest. It's the price for what? A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons for the purification ceremony. And then she climbs the 15 steps up to the majestic Nicanor gate and stands at the threshold. She's not permitted to go any further. But from here, Mary can see into the court the priest and the temple itself. And and what would happen at that moment is an officiating priest would come to her, sprinkle her with sacrificial blood, and declare her to be cleansed. And now she offers up her infant child and pays the ransom price uh, of the two pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons, and, and, and she receives the child back again. And in this way, all this ceremony, Mary shows herself submissive to the will of God and to the word of God. Now, why belabor this point? You can go find it in some book somewhere. Why is it so important? Well, it, for one, it, it does show how serious God takes sin, Oh, the ceremony, how serious he takes uncleanliness. It must be dealt with. Do not trifle with sin. It teaches us that. Second, we see in Mary and Joseph actions of what every godly parent should do. Not the same. We're, you know, the church now, there's obviously changes. But they made spiritual things the most important things. This wasn't simple. You know, they had, they had a sacrifice to do this. We need to set an example for our children, and that's by being obedient to the Word of God. We, they set an example. We need to take them to worship us now. We need to pray with them. We need to study the Word of God with them. We need to be willing to set our children apart for God as Mary and Joseph do. And so, again, Mary sets an example for us. So is that why I belabor this? No. As true as that is, I didn't walk through all that study in such detail just to say, follow Mary's example. Um, There's something a lot more profound going on here. See, Luke is not predominantly, primarily drawing our attention to Mary's obedience. 
but rather he's drawing our attention to Jesus's obedience. He wants you to understand that from the very, very beginning, Jesus lived in complete submission to the law of God. Down to every iota and dot, he fulfilled the law. That's what Jesus says when he's older. Do not think that I came to abolish this law. I have not come to abolish, but I have come to fulfill them. For as truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. An iota and a dot are just little marks in the Hebrew language, and it can make the diff- all the difference in the world about the meaning of a word. Jesus is simply saying, I will fulfill it down to the last letter. I am going to fulfill the whole law. And see here... Just eight days after his birth, Christ begins fulfilling the law. He begins, as one writer says, feeling the pain of securing our salvation as the sharp cut of the blade removes his foreskin. Phil Riken says this is the first shedding of his blood in anticipation of the cross. And let me add this. This is why I want you to understand this. If this blood at the circumcision was never shed. If he never was circumcised, then the blood that was shed on the cross would not be able to pay for our sin. It would just be a meaningless death. Maybe a great man, but it wouldn't have mattered. Do you understand that? Remember what Genesis 17 verse 14 says. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from my people. He has broken my covenant. A covenant breaker cannot atone for the sins of other people. And so for Christ to redeem his people, he had to fulfill the covenant obligations perfectly. Mary couldn't have taken him to be circumcised on the seventh day. She couldn't have taken him uh, to be circumcised on the ninth day. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm tired. It, it, it couldn't have been a week later. Mary and Joseph had woken up that morning and said, let's do this another way. No, she couldn't do that. Let's do it when it's more convenient. No, it had to be the eighth day because that is what the law stipulated. And so you understand, beloved, your salvation is dependent upon Christ being circumcised and Mary being obedient. You know, when we think of Jesus being our Savior, saving us from our sin, what do we think of? We think of the cross, and that's the right thing to do. We should. However, it's not just what people call his passive obedience. Passive, the cross wasn't too passive, but they call it the passive obedience, where he willingly submitted himself to the curse of the law, hanging on a tree, bearing God's wrath for our sin. That's his passive. That's what we call his passive obedience. It's also, though, his active obedience, doing everything that the law of Moses demands right down to the last iota and last dot. And so both are required. And so let me say it again. Mary, having her son circumcised was necessary if you are eventually one day going to be saved, or if you are saved, you're going to end up in heaven. When the fullness of time had come, this is what Paul says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born 
under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, it, it may be getting a little confusing. He, he was born, Jesus, under the law to keep the law. Why? So he could redeem us who were under the law but broke the law. He kept it on our behalf. And it couldn't be any other way. See, if Jesus was going to be a teacher of Israel, he must be obedient to the law of Moses. No Jew would have accepted him if he was uncircumcised, especially an uncircumcised rabbi. But more importantly, if his death and resurrection was to have any significance, if it was to have any atoning value, he must keep the law of God perfectly. And so God entrusted into the hands of these godly parents, right from the start, Christ begins to fulfill the law's demands. And, and so, his earthly road to redemption begins on the eighth day, as it were, and it would continue every second, every minute of every hour of every day for 33 years. Christ would obey the law perfectly in perfect submission to his heavenly Father. And he would do it for you and me on our behalf. Hey, do, you, do you understand the magnitude of that? How many times do you think I sinned from the moment I woke up this morning till I arrived to preach in this pulpit? Countless times that I don't even know. I can name a few. I won't. But there, there, the countless times we sin. Never once. He kept the law perfectly from the heart. And, and, and so Christ obeyed the law in perfect submission to his heavenly Father. And he did it for us. And so the circumcision points to Christ's active obedience. He actively kept the law. And, and as does Mary going through the process of this purification. Think about it. As I said, Mary was presumed unclean. Why? Because of her son was presumed to be a sinful child. Jesus wasn't a sinful child. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so he did not inherit the guilt of Adam's sin. He never broke God's law. He loved both God and man perfectly. He never worshiped anyone but God. He never made for himself an idol. He never used the Lord's name in vain. He never broke the Sabbath. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. He always honored his parents. He never murdered in his heart or otherwise. He never committed adultery. He never stole. He never lied. He never coveted. And so why did Mary need to be purified? It's because God commanded it. That's why. Again, the law had to be fulfilled perfectly. This is why, as you know, when Jesus is older, because we don't hear much about his childhood, that one trip to the temple when he's 12, and then, you know, we're, we're into his adulthood, and he goes and he receives a baptism from John the Baptist. We read in Matthew 3, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John didn't want to baptize him. I mean, would you want to baptize Jesus? I got to baptize you, wash away your sin. No, no, no. I don't need to do that. I, don't, I need to be baptized by you. <laughs> and that's what John says. I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. And what does Jesus say? Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness, to keep the law. So John consented. 
Mary being cleansed was to fulfill all righteousness. But there's another reason. A day was coming when Jesus would indeed take our sin upon himself on the cross. Sin had to be dealt with. Paul said it, for our sake, he made him to be sin. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. In fact, everything that Mary did pointed to or illustrates for us what Christ would accomplish on the cross. Her offering taught that sin and uncleanliness results in separation from God. And the only way to have our fellowship with God restored was through the death of an innocent substitute. She didn't have the money for the lamb, so she had a replacement. But, you know, the the, the lamb was innocent, had to be sacrificed. The whole sacrificial system was an illustration of what Christ would do on the cross. The innocent would be sacrificed for the guilty. And when Mary presents Jesus uh, and then pays the ransom price to receive the child back, we learn something else about Christ's death. It's a ransom payment. As Mark 10 says, for even the Son of God, man, excuse me, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. With his life, Jesus paid the ransom price to free many from sin, death, and hell. He paid the price. If the price wasn't paid, you'd be in hell. And so Christ's death was a substitutionary death. We learned that through the sacrifice. But it, it was also a ransom paid. And so right from the start, we see Jesus is just fulfilling the Old Testament. We have just three examples. We already talked about Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. He's only five weeks old. And he's fulfilling it all. And there's one last thing in our text. Mary, as I said over and over, had to pay the poor man's offering. Not only did she, he, Jesus fulfill the law perfectly, not only is he a perfect substitute, not only is he a ransom for many, not only is he the redeemer, not only is he the only savior, he lived in humility and he lived in humiliation. They were poor. He endured it though. He endured humiliation while he walked on earth so that you may not endure the humiliation you deserve when you face him one day. That's how Paul puts it. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." That was the ultimate display of his humiliation. It wasn't being born in a manger. It was dying the most gruesome, detestable death there was, death on a cross. He's hanging on this cross between two thieves. That's where we belong, but he is there. That's the repeated theme of the birth narrative. Jesus comes to save the lowly. He comes in humility that those who are spiritually destitute may be saved. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit, says Psalm 34, 18. And that's what we see. Let me close. 
I hope you see if we studied the birth of Christ through the eyes of Mary, particularly this last sermon, that you see that Jesus was not only born to die, he was. It is true that the bloody covenant sign of circumcision and bloody sacrifices point to that, but that's not all. Jesus was also born to live. He died as your substitute, but he also lived as your substitute. He fulfilled the law for you because you couldn't do it on your own. No one could. And so the law, it serves many purposes. The law, particularly the ceremonial law, pointed us to the need for a sacrifice, but the law points us to the fact that, wait a minute, this is what God requires of me. And as I look at it, the mirror of the law, all I see is that I fail, I fail, I fail. And it doesn't tell me to try harder, try harder, try harder until you get it right because you'll never get it right. You, it, what it's doing is saying you cannot save yourself. You're desperate apart from me. The God whose wrath is against you is the God who must save you. And the God who saved you sent his son to die in your place and live in your place so that the law could be fulfilled. His obedience, his perfect righteousness is given to us who believe. See, only God, beloved, only God could devise so great a salvation that magnifies his justice, the law must be fulfilled, magnifies his mercy, magnifies his grace, and magnifies his love all at the same time. And so never forget, he was born to die for you, and he was born to live for you. It makes all the difference in the world when it comes to your salvation. From first to last, salvation is of the Lord. He lives a perfect life and credits to your account his righteousness, and he dies taking upon himself the penalty for your unrighteousness. And for that to take place, for that to happen, Jesus, the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead, had to be born into this world of sin. He had to take upon himself full humanity without sin. See, that is what Christmas is all about. That's the message of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we dug deep, looked at several passages, went back and forth, and ultimately came to the biblical conclusion that, that should stir our hearts in, in adoration and thanks to you, that Christ came, he lived for us, and he died for us. For that we give you praise. Amen.